0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Allison Moon.
1: I don't remember if it started out as an orgy or ended up as an orgy, it doesn't matter. But I do remember that Hans was the first person naked in the pile in the middle.
0: (laughs) That and more. But before that, as you guys know, Father's Day is coming. And guys can be tricky to shop for, but a perfect gift to get—a gift that keeps on giving—and that any guy will love—is a Father's Day shaving set from Harrys.com. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. And if you use the promo code RISK, you get five dollars off the limited edition Father's Day set, which includes a razor, three quality blades, Harry's shaving cream, and a brand new razor stand. You save five dollars on your First purchase with our code RISK. Harry's limited edition Father's Day set comes in a sleek box with a customizable card, and you can go the extra mile this year and engrave both the razor and the razor stand. The gift set is shipped directly to your door for free, and I can't tell you how much I love my own set. In fact, I already got a set for my dad, because he saw my razor in the bathroom the last time I went home for a visit, and I told him, look, Harry's is half as expensive as getting blades from the store, and the shave is smoother than any I've ever gotten in my life. So just for Father's Day, Harry's is offering their chrome Winston set paired with their new razor stand. You go to harrys.com, and you save $5 on your first purchase with our code RISK. Also... How great would it be if the post office was open 24-7? You would have no more limited hours. You could get your mailing and shipping done on your schedule, my friend. Well, you can. With Stamps.com, you can print postage whenever you need it right from your desk. Stamps.com will save you time and the hassle of going to the post office. No more rushing there during your busy day. Just use your computer and printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mailman picks it up. You'll save money with Stamps.com, too. You get exact postage the instant you need it. No more overpaying. You even get postage discounts that you can't get at the post office. We use stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial, as odd as that might sound, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. <laughs> now, here's the show. kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Lee Rosevere behind me now, and we're calling today's episode Turning Points. These are three people who either found themselves at a major turning point in their life or were witness to someone else's major turning point in their life. In a little bit, We're going to hear from my very dear friend, Jude Trader-Wolf. But before that, someone I've known a lot longer, Ben Grant, who is uh, a fellow member of the state. You know him from Reno 911. He's written a whole slew of movies, including the Night at the Museum trilogy. And he has been on Risk several times. We love having him. Here he is now at the Risk live show in Los Angeles at the Nerdist showroom with a story we call, Good Work.
2: Um, I guess this story is about the worst job I ever had and the best job I ever had. And I guess I should start by saying that, and I don't know if this is normal or not, because I've never said it to anybody, but I, I, well I'm very, this is I think normal, I've been very worried for my entire life about dying, starving to death on the street, homeless and broke with no money for food. I don't know if everybody does this, but I calculate daily, look up how much money I have, And then figure out how much based on what I'm spending if for some reason nobody ever hires me for anything again How long until I die of starvation? Um, I did it today. I'll be 82. So things are going good, but like but like no bullshit. I do it like every day It's a real legitimate like thing Um, When I moved to New York, I went to New York City uh, to go to NYU and on weekends and in the summers, because I stayed up there, I had all kinds of shitty jobs. I uh, some good jobs too. Um, and the worst job I ever had, I knew it was going to be bad. From the, the, I got the job too easy. Like uh, the interview, like like I, I had I had on like my one button down and like uh, my shoes from Calhoun's. And they said after the interview, they said, "Great, you're hired." It's like, "Oh, fuck. Like what is this?" And it was to go door to door asking for contributions for a charity that was supposed to do stuff for the environment. So I went and it was like this weird office in Midtown that was very temporary. It was like this big room, like as big as this, and there was like one desk with 14 phones on it and like folding chairs and they gave us, they said, okay, oh, this is what you're going to do. You all are going to go door to door in New Jersey, and you're going to ask money for this charity. And here's the brochure right here. Uh, and it was me, and like everybody was either like a kid my age, I was like 17, or it was like people who didn't speak English very well. And I was like, what is, what is this? And they were very vague about what the charity was. What they said was, it's for the environment. And somebody said, if people ask what the charity does, what does it do? Uh and they said, Well it's illegal it's a legal thing for the environment. All right. So we all went downstairs, uh and we, they put us in groups of fifteen, uh and they said, Okay, who here has a driver's license? I had a driver's license. They said, Okay, you're driving. So they put me driving this van, this white passenger van with fifteen people out to New Jersey over the George Washington Bridge, and I got there and I started going door to door. And after the first couple of doors, I realized, like, I'm I'm fucked. Like, I can't, these people ask questions, and I don't know what the answer is. Uh, They were like, so what, what does your thing do? Well, we're for the environment. okay, well, we're a little busy today. And some people were mad. Some people were really, really mad that I knocked on their door. And so after a while, I was terrified. I started just making up shit. I knew a little bit about Southern Poverty Law Center, so I just started saying stuff about that. I was like, well, what it is, is it's uh, what they support uh, lawsuits say Chevron has come into your rainforest. Uh, they give the money to that so you can sue these people. Or or if, you know, they've, they've poisoned your... Ri-. And I just started making up shit. and And... and Half of the people were really, really mad and half of the people gave me money. And the people who gave me money made me feel really, really horrible. And as and I was walking door to door being yelled at by people in Jersey accents or like being given checks for 20 bucks. I realized I'm just begging for myself. I'm not, this isn't a job. I'm going door to door and begging. I'm, I'm, and I should just say, I'm broke. I need a job. Would you give me $20? But, in, but instead I'm like lying to people. I'm saying this totally made up thing. Uh, and so I got back in the, and a guy, I went into one house, nobody answered, and I went around the back, and I saw the family in the backyard, and it was a guy with his two kids and his wife, and so I went around the side of the house, and this big fucking Tony Soprano looking guy was like, what you fucking people do is wrong, it's wrong, this is my castle, this is my home, I was just like, (laughs) fuck, like, uh, So I went home and I quit. I quit after one day, uh, which was hard because they paid us in cash at the end of the day and I got an extra five for driving each way. So I had like 40 bucks in my pocket. I was like, fuck, I can't come back and do this. Um, The best job I ever had in New York and the best job I've ever had in my life came out of these same circumstances. I, I went to NYU to study acting. The tuition was about 18 grand a semester counting housing and everything it was all loans i got a a scholarship of two thousand dollars but that was only for the first two semesters and i got a grant for being from east tennessee because it was appalachia uh four thousand dollars a semester just because Appalachia is so fucked and like they don't and and like and, and like so they they I got and I was like yeah I I've never worked in a coal mine but fuck it I'll take the money yeah but for being from Appalachia NYU gave me four grand a semester but it still left like 11 grand a semester and that's when the clock started ticking in my head of like I'm going to die on the street with no money and owing the banks all of this money and NYU I came there passionate and cocky and I was gonna be an actor. First I learned I suck at acting. Like I thought I was great. In East Tennessee I was fucking Marlon Brando. And now and now I realize that I'm I'm nothing. I'm terrible. And then I realized I don't even know what I'm doing. I Like, these. everything I thought I was doing was wrong, and everything they're teaching me is something that doesn't even make sense to me. And then I started hating acting and actors and everything. I, I just hated it. And I, and I started realizing, this is a racket. Like, <laughs> none, of, none of you guys teaching this shit if you could do it you would do it like if you if you could actually make a living acting you wouldn't be teaching me whatever slice of 11 grand you're getting like you, you would do it you would be fucking brad pitt and you'd be making a fortune uh and it was just bitter and i, I hated it and i i gave up acting for the rest of my life um through nyu thanks um and so uh junior year, while I was starting to do the math every day, of like, okay, how long till I pay off this stuff? Okay, if I never work again, I should have died four years ago. Um, Todd Holabek, I was in a comedy group called The New Group that became the state, and Todd Holabek came in and said, hey, I found a job. Uh, if anybody, there's they're having auditions for this job. Come and, and who wants to do it? And we all went. And it was to be a teenage mutant ninja turtle. Uh... And we all went, the entire state, everybody. And some people flat out didn't fit in the costumes. Uh, Michael Jan didn't fit in the costume. Ken Marino didn't fit in the costume. I fit in the costume. And so we went and did like a, we tried to do the accent and we all bought the comic books and, and we were actors. So we were working on the experience of, you know, they were mutants and they lived in a sewer. You know, like, like what, what does that mean? Uh, and, and, and they basically said, okay, if you want the job, it's yours. You fit in the costumes. Uh, we said great, uh, and, and they said who can be in Detroit in four days? And I was a full-time student at NYU, and Michael Black and I talked ourselves into it on the subway ride down. the The, the money, it was like two thousand bucks a week, like it was crazy. Like it, it like it, by the end of it, I did it for nine months, and by the end of it, it paid off. NYU and bought my apartment for two years in New York City. Uh, I was doing the math on the subway Uh, like uh, So the what the job was uh, I don't know how old everybody is here. Does everybody remember how big the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were like So this was after the first movie, but before the vanilla ice one They did a tour of the country and at Pizza Hut you could buy a cassette tape of their album Uh, And it did a a month sold-out run at Radio City Music Hall. And then it went in every single state for nine months. It did a a tour. Uh, And what it was, was it was a rock and roll concert. And they came out and they sang the the songs from the album. But then Shredder came and kidnapped April. And so they had to fight Shredder and then finish the show. Um, (laughs) And so it was Broadway dancers in these outfits, but it was the outfits looked like the movie. They were lighter weight than the movie, so these dancers could dance. And the heads were audio animatronic, pre-programmed, uh, and the voices were pre-recorded. So the the faces did everything. So the guys in the costumes just danced around, and the faces were like Calabonga, dude, like did the voices. And so they arranged this huge tour, and it was sold out all over the country. And they realized. How do we do promotion? Because the dancers can't talk. Like the dancers are a city behind. they don't know how to do the voice. You know, it's a bunch of Broadway dancer dudes. They needed somebody to go one week advance and do promotion. So what and me and Michael Black, and I was Michelangelo, and Michael Black was Raphael. and we we went in a van. They gave us a Chevy Astro and two big giant coffins in the back that had the costume and like the audio animatronic stuff and they would fax us our orders in each city. So we would get to Detroit and we would get a fax and it would tell us what we were doing and we did like six morning zoos that we would go onto the radio from like five in the morning till eight and kids would call, like kids hadn't gone to school yet. Oh, what kind of pizza do you like? Free pizza, dude, you know? like. And, and 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 promote the show. Uh and we would and it, it was great. So we every every city was from five to like uh nine was morning zoos, and then we would go do the local weather, like whoever the funny weather guy was in Omaha, like you would do the weather with him, and they always did it at a pet store. Hey, wouldn't it be funny if we were at a pet store? Uh and so they're at it well, we're at this pet store looking like, oh my gosh, and then Michelangelo would come out, whoa, what's the weather, dude? Um, and then we would go to a school, often with McGruff the crime dog, and talk about how drugs just aren't cool, man. Like, uh, with Dare. So it was us and a cop and McGruff the crime dog, and, like, (laughs) we'd talk. And the, the suits looked great. Like, the suits were the ones from the movie. And sometimes one of us would be doing the voice offstage while the other one was pantomiming. And you were off stage doing the voice and like working the mouth and working the eyes and making it sound like it really looks cool. And the guy on stage would be just pantomiming. And it looked like the fucking movie. Like, so kids never, ever, ever, I swear to God, in nine months, nobody ever asked, are you in a costume? Not once. Like, like, like people just, the kids just like bought it. So it was being like a rock star for seven year olds. Uh, we went all over. We to every single state. I'd never seen most of the country before. We went to Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, we were in a van with the local promoters. Uh, we did an appearance there for live television, and it was like this live two-hour TV show in Puerto Rico There was this old guy in a tuxedo and this big, like, divine-looking drag queen <laughs> named Cake. Uh, and they and 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 they said, okay. So what you what we're gonna do is a thing where we're just gonna film it and we'll do it live. So it's gonna be on every TV in Puerto Rico live. And you're trying to get past the bouncer, explaining that you're Michelangelo, but but the bouncer's not gonna have you on the list, and so you guys scuffle. And like and it's all through a translator because I don't speak Spanish. I'm like, well, okay, okay. How long does this last? And they're like, ten minutes. Like. Okay. Uh, okay, great. So so I so I'm Michelangelo and I'm come up. Yeah, I'm on the thing, dude. And I'm on the list. I should be on the list. And the the regular character on this was the old like 100-year-old security guy who's like always oh, giving people a hard time, you know, you can't get in here share. Like he's that guy. Uh and, and, and so I so, was okay, this is what I'll do. I'll come up, and then I'll try to kung fu you, because I'm a ninja turtle. And I'll kung fu you a couple times, and we'll kind of play kung fu, and then I'll get in. And everybody was like, great, great. So I come up to this guy, and I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm on the list. And the translator says, yeah, hey, Tortuga's ninja. Uh, and, and the old man is like, no, 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 that's, he's not on the list. So I start kung fuing him, and the first time I kick him, I hit him, and he goes down, Boom! and hits his head on this linoleum floor, and it's bleeding. Like, like, and and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I look over, and everybody behind the camera's just like, go, go, nine minutes, nine minutes. Uh, and so we like, kind of Benny Hill chase each other around, and everybody doesn't care. And like, this guy is like, trying to get up, and like, bleeding on the floor, and we're doing like, crazy, uh, he was okay. Um. It was a great, great, great experience. Um, <laughs> and it really changed my. I mean, it was just like, this is just fucking fun. Like, I, I'm having a great, great time. Um, what's the song? The songs were, for those of you who don't remember, one of them was, yo, I'm the one they call Michelangelo. Let me kick my story, just say so. Born like a pet, just like the rest of them. I grew up wild to party with the best of them. Living loose, living large, with my shell. Now I'm in charge. It's not that I'm crass, not that I'm crude, just that I'm a naturally tuberly dude. Like, get yeah. it two hundred times. So, I saw the whole country at 19. It was great. I remember they gave me a room in Vegas, way off the strip, but I had a hot tub in the middle of the fucking room, and there was an honor bar. So it was like the first beer I'd had since New York, and I like sat in my own like hot tub and like watched The Simpsons, and it was just like I felt like fucking Tony Montana. I was just like, yeah, this is, you know, this is fucking great. And part of the job was we always went to children's hospitals at every single city. Uh, So we would go through these children's hospitals and greet all these kids. And some of them were kids with broken arms. And a lot of them were really, really, really sick. And the first time I thought I was going to go in, I was terrified. I didn't know if I could handle it. But you go in and you're just the turtle. So it didn't really matter. And they didn't think of you as like an adult. And so they sort of lit up and were happy to see you come in. And you say, yeah, how you doing, dude? Yeah, you look good. Yeah, I'm bald, too. You know, it was it was like this thing. And it really like, and Pizza Hut had some kind of understanding with the Make-A-Wish program. So Make-A-Wish, which grants uh, wishes to kids who are dying with leukemia, like in every single city, there was at least one and sometimes four Kids dying of leukemia, who their wish list was to meet a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. So they would, uh, Pizza Hut would close for this kid and their friends. And I would go, and I'd go in the back door, like this sweaty, disgusting 19-year-old punk rock guy. And I would always change in the, like, walk-in freezer, like change into the big thing, and then sneak out the back door, and they would have, like, the local radio station limo. And I would get into that, and it would go around the building and I would come out yeah dude and like I would go inside and talk to these kids and at first I couldn't look at them and I was worried because the outfit looks good but the eyes don't move when you're in it like the eyes only moved if there was somebody operating it and the mouth pretty good it was it was fitted to my chin so it like went blah 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 like it wasn't just like a mickey mouse and like nothing so when i talked it moved but i was worried that they would think oh this is a kind of costume and then when i finally like the second or third one looked up in their eyes like i realized that they, they are scared to look at my face too like that they're just kind of looking at my chest and like you know like hey how are you and never once did i get asked is it hot in there you know, like, like never once did they ask me, like, "Is that stuffy? Like, can you see me?" Like, they were just—I was fucking Michelangelo to all of these fucking kids. Um, they one one kid once said, "You're really Michelangelo," and I and I said, "No, I'm Donatello. I change masks to mess with you, dude," and it killed. <laughs> and like, and so. My, my best job that I ever had was looking at little children who were dying and lying right to their face. <laughs> um, and and I, I'm like, it was 25 years ago, and my whole life I've been trying to find something that good to do again, and I, I haven't even come close.
3: Patrick's Day 1982 it's a Friday evening rush hour it's raining sheets and sheets and so the evening rush hour is complicated by that and I'm on 9th Avenue headed down to the Lincoln Tunnel to go to my third of three jobs in West Orange New Jersey and I'm in my 1974 Buick Apollo this car that I bought in Wisconsin where I grew up we actually bought it in from my hometown it's a little intimidated by the big city. It doesn't really know anybody here. It feels like it's not a fancy, cool New York car. It's just a little Wisconsin car. And I feel about my car like I do my relationship. It's keeping me going. It's always breaking down. And it's got a lot of miles on it. Now, in the case of my relationship, it literally has a lot of miles on it. Like, my boyfriend lives in Australia, where I was living with him right before I moved to the East Coast just about a year Before this day, Philip is this very charismatic, very handsome, very tall, sort of an enigmatic, sad person who I found that absolutely compelling when I met him, this sort of dark, brooding intensity about him. And when he used to say to me that I was the light in his darkness, I loved that and I was so in love with him and I wanted to be that and I also thought that it might kill me. I had this internship in New Jersey and so I took it thinking that we couldn't be together because we got along better when we had two oceans between us. Now that I've been here on the East Coast for a year all I can think about is getting back there to be with him. Now I had dreamed of going to Australia when I lived in Wisconsin, because in Wisconsin where I I was in college and it was some rough emotional times, everyone I love is there, but I had to get away. I really had to get away from some of the dramas that were going on in my family and, and among the people that I loved. And the thought of getting to Australia and being with him during that last year of college was something that really kept me going. And now I feel like that again. I've got to get back there. I've got it figured out now, and now I can handle it. I know what to do to make it work with him. So that's all I do is work and save money and try to get back there. So here I am on my way to my third of three jobs. I'm about halfway through the Lincoln Tunnel, somewhere between New York and New Jersey on the line, when my car just stops moving, just stops. It's running, but it doesn't move. Now, the Lincoln Tunnel is this enormous cavernous dark kind of grimy world underneath the ground (laughs) and now it is filled with cars that are honking and people screaming because after traffic has been slow now is stopped altogether I'm just sitting there thinking "How, how do I get out of here because I'm from Wisconsin, I immediately feel responsible for all these people whose lives have been further inconvenienced by my breakdown. So I get out of the car and I'm standing in the middle of this enormous tunnel saying to people, mouthing to people, I don't know why it won't go. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And people are giving me the finger and screaming at me and saying they're going to kill me. I'm just overwhelmed because it's just like, I'm, this tiny little mouse in a huge basement, like an enormous basement filled with cars. And then I hear this, this robotic voice. Please get back in your vehicle, return your vehicle. And I look and I see this strange device manned by a guy sitting in it that comes along the side of the Lincoln Tunnel from the Jersey side where I'm headed and tows me to the mouth of the Lincoln Tunnel on the Jersey side, drops my car off there. People are passing me, giving me the finger, cursing at me. Everybody hates me. And now I'm standing in the pouring rain, standing in a phone booth, soaking wet, with a stack of yellow pages. I have $7, my checkbook, which has maybe $150 in it, and that's it. I, I have not made any friends that I know well enough to ask to come and get me on a night like this All I can see are headlights into infinity on the Jersey side. So I just start calling tow companies, hoping they'll answer, hoping once I reach them that they will take pity on me and tow me out of here. So they're closed, they've already got their drink on, it's St. Patrick's Day, they don't answer. A half hour goes by, an hour goes by, and it takes me a little time now in between calls because my hysteria is rising. I see in the yellow pages, I see there's a towing company and a garage not that far from my apartment. And I am just got my fingers crossed that they answer the phone and I can keep this guy on the phone. That's all. I got to keep this guy on the phone so he doesn't hang up on me. And this guy answers and I tell him where I am and he's about to hang up and I know I have to do something to keep him from hanging up on me, so I just lose it. I just weep and beg. No, you don't understand. I don't know anybody here. I'm new here in New York. I don't know anybody to call. Only you, my only hope. You have to come and help me. Please don't leave me here. Please don't leave me here by the side of the Lincoln Tunnel for the rest of my life. And uh, And so this guy takes pity on me and he says, okay, lady, we won't leave you stranded here. I'll come and get you before I close up. So now I have to ask the loaded question. Do you take checks? Silence. I know I have to do something to keep from hanging up on me, so I start weeping and begging again. No, really, the check is good. You don't understand. I haven't lived here that long. I don't know why. Please, 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 you can't leave me here. So he says, okay, okay, all right. I'll, I'll come and get you. So now I settle into my car, expecting a very long wait because I don't know how this guy's gonna get here before morning. It's so much traffic, rain, and it feels like midnight, and it's really about seven o'clock. So about 40 minutes later, I'm staring into the dark and into the rain. This beam of light just breaks open from the fog. Comes this beautiful, beautiful machine. The lights break through and shine on me. And there's a guy grinning down at me from this beautiful tow truck that somehow made it there in 45 minutes. And before I know it, he's got my car hooked up to the back of his machine, dangling like a landed Marlin, just in the breeze, back and forth. And now I'm in the cab of the truck, and I'm, I feel better. I feel re- I'm saved. I can't believe it. I'm getting home tonight. I'm going to get, and, and he's a very nice person who feels very bad for me in this situation, drives me right to the front of my apartment. He says, you know, I'll take the car in. I'll try to figure out what's wrong with it, but you're home, you're dry, you're okay. I'll call you and let you know. So I go to pay him. I give him the check and my ID. And then another long pause. I said, what's wrong? He says, I don't know if I can accept this. My stomach just drops. Why? What? He says... Well, you hear you have a check from an, a New York bank, it has a New Jersey address on it, and you have a Wisconsin driver's license. And when he says that, again, my stomach just drops like somehow I this has escaped my notice over a year's time, a little detail I never took care of, and I know I have to do something to get him to take that check and accept it. So, I just start weeping and begging. And I'm like, no, really, the check is good. You don't understand. I don't, I, I, I don't know how I let this happen. I'm so sorry. I don't know how I let this happen. I feel so stupid. I said, just keep the car until the check clears. It's okay. So I go inside and I'm sitting there thinking, how did this happen? Why? Why? How did I let myself get in a situation like this? About 30 minutes later, the guy calls me back, says your car's running, I put transmission fluid in it, you just have to figure out why it drained out, but I'm gonna drop it off, you're okay. You know, you don't even have to, don't give me another check. Monday morning, I'm at the Department of Motor Vehicles of New Jersey to get my New Jersey driver's license, because I'm not gonna let this happen to me again. And the lady, so kind, says in that Department of Motor Vehicle way, you know you can't have a driver's license from two different states at the same time, which I did not know. Will you surrender your Wisconsin driver's license? Like this is a big formal ceremony of some kind. I never heard that word used in this context, but I say, okay, yes, I'm surrendering my Wisconsin driver's license, and I do. When I hand that Wisconsin driver's license over, I feel waves and waves of grief and loss and emptiness. And I know now why I never got a New Jersey driver's license, because that would mean that this is the state I really live in and that this relationship is really over. And being here on the East Coast Is much harder and lonelier and emptier than I ever dreamed it would be and this dream of going back to Australia has used itself up that dream got me through a hard time when I was younger and now that dream is over and I really have to be here now I have to be in the state that I actually live in and the state that I live in is emotionally pretty sad and I know that I can do it. I have to. I have to handle it. I'm here now. And it helps that I got a AAA card and a Visa card. And if I do start dating again, maybe I should think about dating a mechanic.
0: This is Risk. This is Mark Vidler of Go Home Productions doing a mashup of Blondie and The Doors. And we just heard from Jude Trader-Wolf, who is the host of a storytelling show in Long Island called Mostly True Things. You can find out more at MostlyTrueThings.com. Our final story today comes from the show we just did in San Francisco, along with Body Storytelling at Dixie De La Tour's show in San Francisco. If you live in the Bay Area or even if you're just passing through, you gotta check if a Body Storytelling show is happening soon because it really is not to be missed. It is such a treat. You can find Body at BodyStorytelling.com. That is, of course, B-A-W-D-Y Storytelling.com Alison Moon is the author of the new sex ed book Girl Sex 101 and her memoir Bad Dyke is full of sexy stories as well. She's also the author of two lesbian werewolf novels but you know who isn't? Here's here's Allison now with a story we call Four Orgies and a Funeral. bye
1: Hello. So I'm a bit of a misanthrope, a friendly misanthrope, uh, but I just don't think that the average person is much more interesting than a really good sandwich. Uh, And 15 years ago, I met somebody who actually made me reevaluate my stance and maybe consider being a better person. Hans Glowed. He was one of those guys that just kind of had a, a love for life that just gave him an incandescence that created light, that created heat. I met him when I was in college. He was two years older than me and six inches shorter. And he uh, glowed because of paleness at first. <laughs> he was, like, translucent. Um, I don't remember much of our first meeting, but I do remember that he asked me a lot of questions, like really big, deep questions of me, like, what do you want to create in this world? And what turns you on spiritually? And who really are you at the end of the day? Questions that, as a 17-year-old, I did not have the qualifications to answer. Uh, But once he saw that, he moved on to more neutral topics but he always asked me a lot of questions. Uh, His favorite question I learned was, would you like to have sex with me? Uh, I had gotten that question many times before, uh, but I had never gotten it from a man while sober, while dressed in the broad daylight. And so when I said for the first time, no thanks, and he said, cool, you want to go climb my favorite tree? I wasn't quite sure what to do with that. I didn't know that they made men like that. Men that didn't attach ego and expectations to that question, which sounds simple, but is actually incredibly fraught. So I learned to like him tentatively because he loved so openly and I was so caged. But there was something there that I knew that I I needed to love about him. And every once in a while, he would say... He would just kind of check in, just in case something had changed, you know. And uh, I would usually say no, nothing had changed until something kind of did. June 19th, 2003, I remember this date very clearly because I had just graduated from college and I was staying in town saving money and trying to figure out what the hell to do with my life. And I walked into the town square, and I saw Hans there, flanked by many well-dressed African American people. And I, he said, "Happy Juneteenth, Allison." And I said, "What's Juneteenth?" And then I proceeded to get an education in African American Emancipation Day from the whitest person I have ever known. And he said, what are you going to do with the rest of your life now that you're done? And I said, I don't know. And he said, what are you going to do today? And I said, I have no idea. And he says, would you like to have sex? <laughs> and I say, no, thanks. And he says, would you like to go swimming? And I say, fuck yes, because I always want to go swimming. And so he says, have you been to Chance Creek? This is this swimming hole outside of campus. And in the four years I've been on campus, I have not gone and so he says well we're going and so we get in the car and we start driving out and he says on the road allison when did you discover that you were bisexual And i said i don't i don't know if i ever discovered it i mean it was kind of like a an amalgam of dreams and crushes and attractions that kind of added up to me And it wasn't really discovering me as something different. It was discovering that the world was smaller than my sexuality was, I guess. And he said, when you had sex with a woman for the first time, was it revelatory? And I said, no, no, actually, not at all. It was just scary. And when I'm honest with myself, which isn't very often, but when I am... It was actually kind of gross. Like, genitals aren't my favorite part of sex. It's the skin on skin that I really love. And he says, Allison, I want to hold your hand. Will you hold my hand? And so he holds his hand on the armrest of the car, and I, I put my hand inside of it. And we just drive in silence on these hot back roads of Ohio for a little while. And then he says, I want to share something embarrassing with you. Can I do that? And I say, yeah, of course. And so he says, when I graduated high school, um, we had a bonfire, and a bunch of the guys, we went into the cornfields, and we practiced giving each other blowjobs. And, like, me, as, like, a nascent sex educator, was prepared to be like, that's totally normal. (laughs) But he kept on going, and he said, and, like, like, I really wanted to like it, you know, like, I like, closed my eyes, and when I thought of things, like, I really liked it. And then when I opened my eyes, it's like I just there was a guy there, and I just couldn't, I couldn't go there. And I'm really sad about that. And I, I'm really sad that you get to have all of these flavors, and I, I just can't go there. Because that's the kind of guy he was. He was envious of me for being able to love widely as much as I was envious of him for being able to love deeply. And so we got to the creek and we met some friends and there was two other girls and we'd all worn swimsuits and Hans was just like, fuck this noise. And he just ran to the water, stripped his clothes naked, just jumped into the water and the girls, and we were like, okay, yeah, it's it's gonna happen. So we just stripped naked and we dove into the water and it became one of those perfect summer days, you know? swimming and long languid conversations about whatever was on our minds and we laid on rocks like turtles sunbathing and Hans found this really cool area of mud he just started slathering it on this dark brown mud all over his bright white body covering himself and so the girls we all just started covering ourselves in mud and I actually had a camera in, and so I put it on a rock when this was auto time and I pressed the auto time and I ran back and we took these pictures of ourselves. I have three pictures from that day and my favorite one is Hans. He's like trying to adjust his position and he starts taking a knee and then his arms go out because he's like losing his balance. He just goes <laughs> Just naked, covered in mud, looking like he's about to take fucking flight. <laughs> that was the last time I saw him for seven years. And uh, the next time I saw him, I, was, I needed a favor. I was moving from Los Angeles to San Francisco. And I had a bunch of stuff I needed to store in a basement. So he's like, don't worry, I got you covered. And uh, things fell through. I was on the five, and he says, he calls me, he's like, just meet me here. I've got you covered. So I pull in to Oakland in the storage facility the next morning with my partner in this rental truck, and Hans runs up to me, smiles, hugs me, and says, here's the lock, don't worry about it. It's all taken care of. You're good. Welcome to your new home. And uh, that's the kind of guy that that he was. And I wasn't quite sure what to do with this. I'm still never quite sure what to do with that kind of openness, you know. Uh, So my partner, Reed, and I eventually found this beautiful loft, but needed a lot of work. And Hans had built a bunch of houses for Habitat for Humanity, and was a carpenter by trade, and so he would just show up with tools, helping me do shit around the house. Uh, Reed was gone for most of the summer that we were building the space, and so Hans would just show up with this toolkit. He came up with these, these nails that have, like, explosive, like, You know, the gunpowder in the tip? Where they're they're used to, like, you hit them, they drive into concrete. So he taught me how to build walls and hang doors and hang windows and drive these crazy combustible nails into concrete because he wanted to build houses as strong as his friendships. You know? So we had a big housewarming party, and Reed and I, we throw parties that turn into orgies or orgies that turn into parties. We just throw parties where a lot of people get... sexy and so the first party that we threw I don't remember if it started out as an orgy or ended up as an orgy it doesn't matter but I do remember that Hans was the first person naked in the pile in the middle (laughs) and I thought this is going to be a good place for us to live for a little while so we had a lot of these parties and Hans became a regular fixture and every once in a while he'd be like Allison do you want to have sex and I'm like no I'm cool thanks no thanks but I would always throw him to my, my lady friends who came by because I knew he was so good. He was such that kind of guy that you wanted to, like, throw your ladies to because he would f- make the laughs happen and the moans happen and the giggles and the moans happen. At the same time, that's the kind of quality guy you want at your orgies, <laughs> right? And we had also, because we were both, my partner and I were both sex educators, we had inherited a bunch of, like, sex furniture. So we had, like, a, seg- a bondage table and a bondage chair and a sex swing and a sex machine... This, like, pneumatic thing. It was like... <laughs> 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 it was like a dildo on the end of this pneumatic arm over this leather bench. <laughs> <laughs> Just relentless, right? <laughs> Amazing. Um, and the sex swing was Hans's favorite. I would often look up from a pile of bodies and see him perched there with a beatific smile on his face, looking over at the writhing sexiness happening in front of him. Sometimes he would be alone, often he was not. Uh, So we had a bunch of these parties And then about a year into us Moving into like our anniversary in this loft um, We had had another party And it was like I was cranky that night It was a small party And he's like Allison, do you want to have sex Or just play or something And I said no thanks At this point it was out of habit And maybe a little bit of social anxiety, as opposed to out of actual thought and desire. Because, in retrospect, and I often think about this, when he asks, you know, do you want to play, the answer is actually yes. But I didn't say yes, I just said no thanks, like I always said to, to him. And said okay and i foisted him on one of my friends and i watched and enjoyed as he giggled and romped with her all night and it was really beautiful and fun uh and then not a week later i got a phone call from another college friend who i'd seen in san francisco a bunch of times and and he called and i answered and he says allison and his voice just trails off And, like, instinctively, like, I knew it was one of, you know, those phone calls, even though I'd never gotten one of those phone calls before. And he says, Hans. And he just chokes. And I lower myself to the corner of my bed. And he says, Hans. And he chokes on his own voice again. And I say, Hans what? And he just... Wretches the words, Hans is dead. And I, he gives me a little bit of the details. And I say, okay, thanks. And I hang a button. And I'm holding my phone, and I'm, I'm looking at it, and I'm scrolling through the contacts. Because I'm supposed to call somebody now, right? That's what you're supposed to do. I'm just a phone tree or some shit. I'm scrolling through and I see a bunch of names and no one in my phone needs to know right then. But I pick a couple people and I call them just because I feel like I need to repeat the phrase like I'm learning a foreign language. Hans is dead. Hans is dead. Hans is dead. And then I I get up and I I walk to Reed in his office and I say, Hans is dead. And he looks at me and he says, Okay. Okay, like a question, like, Are you okay? Okay, what do I need to do for you? Okay, is everything okay? And I say, Okay. And so I walk into the middle of the home that Hans helped me build, and I feel empty. And so I, I I get back to work. So I go outside to pull some plywood off the roof of my car, which I had ratcheted to it, because we still had work to do on the loft. And I call over my shoulder, Reed, can you help me? And then... uh. Reed finds me on the asphalt next to the car, heaving in sobs. And now the 15 minutes of shock has, is over, and I just feel ugh, everything, everything, everything. And honestly, having experienced grief a couple times in my life, I have to expect that the prevalent emotion... After l- l- hearing news of a loss, is regret. Right? Regret for all the things you said, regret for all the things you didn't say, regret for the last thing you said to them before they left. All that bullshit just comes right there. Regret for all the moments that you have been denied. And all I could feel was regret, and the only word I ever heard in my head was no thanks no thanks, no thanks to all the times Hans asked me if I wanted to be loved as much as he wanted to love me. And I said, no thanks. There was a funeral, of course. Uh, Hans was actually in seminary, which sounds kind of silly, except for he actually was like the kind of Christian that Christians say Christians are. Uh, he, like, saw God in everything and the divine in everyone, and so, of course, it seemed perfectly clear that he'd be wearing a collar around his neck while heading to the orgy. Um, so, so we went to the funeral, and it was all of the things that you think a funeral should be and all the things that an atheist at a funeral feels is what, what I felt. And in the basement, in the reception, I had this picture of us covered in mud, naked. And I couldn't show it to anyone there because all of the friends that knew him the way I knew him, they weren't there. They didn't feel comfortable there. And in the weeks later, his spirit was not at rest with us. The Hans that I knew found God in sweat and come. And moans and screams And I knew I needed to throw Hans a fucking orgy So we threw Hans a fucking orgy and in the house that Hans helped built, uh, we had friends that I haven't seen since college. His oldest lovers, who lived in the Bay Area and I never saw, his, one of his great oldest lovers was there w- holding hands with her boyfriend, with her arm wrapped around the woman who I will always consider to be his widow, sharing stories about how much passion could be packed into such a fucking small container. And as they shared their stories about why they needed to honor him this way, because it wasn't just me, it was a lot of us that needed to honor him in the way that we knew him best. I looked across the circle as we were sharing stories, and I saw my partner, who could have been Hans's cousin, but for like 100 pounds and like 8 inches of height. And I saw in him what I saw in Hans, this need to create community around sweat and lust, and love, and experience of catharsis in ways that are maybe outside of the norm. And I looked at him, and I was so grateful that I actually was able to say yes to him more times than I was able to say no to Hans. And the orgy was amazing. I mean, it was amazing. There are people fucking, like, crazy. There were sobs that turned into orgasms. Orgasms turned into sobs because as sex geeks we know, often these things are inextricably linked. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we played Scrabble. We played sex Scrabble. It's a team sport. Um... We played it in teams of two where when you were laying down the tiles, you had to be the one getting fucked while you were laying down the tiles. It created some really rudimentary, problematic words. (laughs) And some real strategic quandaries like, why would you end a word in an E right before a triple word score? It doesn't matter. It didn't matter. And I, I, I was partnered with a woman who scared me, and I felt yes in the scaredness, in the way that I always felt no in the scaredness with Tom. And we had an uneven number of people in the game. So we actually decided we needed to have somebody so they could play with the seventh member, and so we hauled out the sex machine. <laughs> So one of our teammates got to play while getting fucked by the machine. And late in the evening, after all of us were spent, and we lifted our glasses and our asses to the man who was dear departed. Somebody said, You know that sex machine? We should name him Hans. And so we did. Hans now lives next to my favorite reading chair in the loft, usually very quiet, but I know that if he ever asks again, my answer is going to be yes.
2: Thank you.
4: Seems strange that such a delicate flower to stimulate needs serious horsepower. I can't pretend it's a waste to be phony. She needs a stack on speed and I'm just a little pony. She took me to a dungeon in the hill. Didn't get me hot, no, instead it gave me chills. I can pretend I didn't notice how she loved the attention. She was willingly sodomized with a lawnmower engine. Come for me, will you, baby? Like a passion in movie scene. Come for me, will you, lady? But I am not the man who can give her what she needs. Because she only comes when she's fucked by a machine. A machine named Hans.
0: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Jefferson Berge behind me now. He was performing with us live there at that Risk Meets Body show that we did in San Francisco. We'll be featuring many more stories from those shows. And we've got amazing live shows planned for this summer. On July 17th, we'll be back in Minneapolis. Minneapolis, come out and see us on July 17th. And pitch us. Pitch us your stories. The theme that night is shock. SHOCK! Think of times that you were shocked, or in shock, or shocking someone. Pitch those stories to me at dot at showcom Minneapolis people. And on July 25th, we'll be going to Reno, Nevada. Now, we are taking pitches for the, the Reno show. The theme is Mindfuck. So maybe you or someone you know has a story of a time you were amazed or bewildered or uh, completely misled or had some sort of amazing eureka moment. Pitch us your mindfuck stories, folks who live anywhere near Reno, Nevada. We're coming there on the 25th of July. I'm also teaching a workshop out there at that time. Just go to risk-show.com slash tour to find out about the show and to find out about the workshop. Uh, if you can't pitch a story, you can sure be there to see the show or attend the workshop. Philadelphia! Philadelphia, we return to you on August 21st. And the theme that night will be thrills. So anyone who has good stories about thrills and, uh, you know, thrills, thrill kind of things, thrills. is the whole idea of that one. (laughs) That's August 21st. Pitch me at Kevin at Risk-Show.com. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk.
4: Come for me. Like a passionate movie scene. Come for me, will you, baby? But she yawns and rolls her eyes. And what others find obscene, she only comes when she's fucked by a machine. To a fucking fuse, she only comes when she's fucked by a machine. For